0: My guests on today's show are Luke Ellis and Mario Terrian, longtime veterans of the hedge fund industry who hold the chairman and deputy chairman seats of the SBAI, or Standards Board of Alternative Investments. The SBAI is an industry consortium that brings together managers and investors to set best practices for the alternative investment industry. In their day jobs, Luke is the CEO of Man Group, the largest publicly traded hedge fund company with $120 billion in assets. And Mario is the head of investment funds and external management at Canadian pension fund CDPQ, where he oversees $45 billion of funds managed externally. Our conversation focuses on the activities of the SBAI, including its purpose, origin, members, and evolution. We cover how members of an industry driven by different interests came to agree on anything and what has transpired since its founding after the financial crisis. We then turn to the state of the hedge fund industry and discuss its structure, fees, and future. Please enjoy my conversation with Luke Ellis and Mario Terrian. Mario, Luke, thanks for joining me.
1: It's a real pleasure.
2: It's a real pleasure, Ted. It's good to speak with you again.
0: Mario, I know we've done one in the past and had some of your background. And so I'm going to have Luke start out with his background. But before we do that, Mario, I know since you were on the show a few years ago, you've had a little bit of a change in your role. So why don't you just touch a little bit on how you're spending your time at CDP these days?
2: What we've done essentially is, you know, as you remember, I was mainly responsible for external funds in public markets and we just started the strategic partnership effort. This is all still going on. I think that what we've added now is we have reunited under one single roof all of the activities that we do with external managers at CDPQ. So we're covering the whole spectrum of liquidity. So from hedge funds to long only in both equity and fixed income markets to private markets, to VC, to private debt, everything that we do at CDPQ with our external funds, which covers about $45 billion Canadian, which is about close to 15% of total assets of CDPQ. And that covers about uh, 130 different GPs around the world. So... It's one group under one practice, external funds, doing all of the pre-investment and post-investment work for the benefit of the internal managers at CDPQ.
0: Now, Luke, I can't let you off quite that easily since it's the first time. And we did talk about, we'll do another one in the future that is more broad about what you're doing at MAN. But why don't you just go ahead and dive into your background, even go back to how you first got interested in investing.
1: So I knew from a very early age that I wanted to work in finance, that I've always loved patterns and numbers, and finance fascinated me from an early age. And so I basically took the first job I could find in the city, as finance is called, in the UK. That basically led me into investment banking because that happened to be where it was, and I I was lucky enough to drop straight into the swaps business. So I basically spent 10 years as a derivative person within banks, ended up running JP Morgan's equity derivative business for a number of years, but also running an equity prop trading business, which was basically a big hedge fund hidden within a trading business. And when that stopped being fun for various reasons, I wasn't sure what to do next. An old friend of mine had started a fund of hedge funds. I said I'd go and help him out for a couple of days and ended up spending 10 years there. And then when that stopped being fun, I retired, had a couple of years off. And then an old friend of mine, again, same route into things, basically was involved in running GLG. And when man went to buy GLG, that seemed like too interesting an opportunity not to get involved in how the turnaround process for the firm would be. And so that led me to 10 years of that.
0: Great. Well, A lot of the subject of what we're going to talk about today relates to the Standards Board for Alternative Investments, and I know both of you have been involved for a while, and why don't we start with what this board is? So Mario, why don't you go ahead?
2: The SBAI, which was formerly called HFSB, Edge Fund Standard Board, is a neutral standard setting body for the alternative investment industry. And more specifically for hedge funds. We're covering a little more than hedge funds, but it's essentially for hedge funds. It's a not for profit. We've been active over a decade. It was established in 2008 following the concerns expressed by the G8 over the financial stability of hedge funds. You might recall that period, Ted. It's a board of trustees. We are 15 on the board of trustees. We're really targeting a good balance between managers and investors. We also have a small SBAI team that runs sort of the business. We've also added over the years, the regional committees for APAC, EMEA, and North America. We have in parallel to this working groups, we're working on specific issues to advise the board and to obviously we're surrounding ourselves with industry leaders, institutional investors. This buy also has just about 130 different signatories who have all committed to adhere to the standards that represents over 1 trillion in AUM worldwide. The investor chapter, which is the balance with the signatories, it's about 80 major investors around the world and we cover north of 3.5 trillion in assets. Luke, take me back
0: to 08 and how did this come about and why?
1: So I think if we're all honest, the hedge fund industry did not cover itself in glory, and that's being overly polite, in 2008. Performance was pretty rubbish across the average hedge fund, but also there was a lot of poor behavior, and regulators were worrying about it. But actually, even more than regulators worrying about it, participants were worrying that you had this situation where for... The previous 10 years, there'd been a massive imbalance between the amount of managers there were available and the amount of capital that wanted to get in. And so managers had sort of been able to do almost anything they wanted. A lot of documentation was 10, 15, 20 years old, and it was somewhat chaotic, somewhat wild west, and a bunch of people behaved badly did things which weren't in the interests of their shareholders or their investors during the course of that. And basically, it started as a group of hedge fund managers trying to work out how to set some standards for better behavior. Very rapidly was a realization that it didn't work if it was just managers trying to agree good behavior, that actually you needed a balance between what worked for managers and what worked for investors. And so very quickly, investors got involved. And you had a, just a place where people could sit down and go, OK, I'm faced with this situation. This is what I think we're supposed to do. Do people agree? Am I?" It was just a way of working out what best practice was. Everybody talks about alignment of interest in the alternatives industry. But the reality is unless you sit around and discuss it, you have a situation where the investors pay the fees and the managers receive the fees. And you can't be perfectly aligned in that world because you've got very different incentives. What the Standards Board was about was trying to get a place where we could agree, here's what good behavior was. It started very much in Europe, and really that meant London, with a group of it was sort of sponsored in a way by the regulator in the UK, but it was really, it was a group of big managers who knew each other well enough through, if nothing else, the dining circuit in London to be willing to sit down and you have to admit what you're good at, what your failings are, what you don't understand to each other, to your competitors and to your clients. It's not everybody's natural starting place, but it, that's how it started. And as Mary has said, over the course of the last 10 years or 12 years, or, it's gone very global. And the important thing all the time is that there's been a balance between investors and managers and therefore a willingness to not just fight your own corner, but to try to work out what best practice is.
0: So when you started out, was there a consensus of what bad behavior meant that you were trying to exclude?
1: I think there were certain parts of bad behavior. Remember, so this all started out in the window of a lot of funds gating, some of them gating for long periods of time. You had a bunch of managers who were paying themselves very well. Remember, back then you had stories of people who were had bought a private jet using fund assets and were flying themselves around to go skiing every weekend on the investor's dime. I think when we all talked about it, you could see a series of behaviors that everybody hated. The managers in the room didn't like the fact other managers were doing that and were things they would never have done. The investors absolutely hated some of those things. There were some easy things to say that's not the right way to behave. And there are some which take a lot of discussion to work out. What is a sensible, balanced position? You get some investors who say, look, you should never have a management fee on a hedge fund. And I can understand why from an investor's point of view, that might feel good. But actually, it's not good from the long-term health of the business, because if you haven't got management fees, your business actually become unstable, and that's dangerous for the investors. So that willingness to have... Open conversations, honest conversations. I think when you look back to the early meetings, it took a while till Kimonos got fully open. But there was an intention that it was a good thing to do.
0: So, Mario, from those early meetings, how did you go from a smaller group of managers and maybe early on some allocators who did see eye to eye to broaden it out to a wider field within the industry on both sides?
2: I joined in 2011 as a trustee and we were still small at that time and was mainly eurocentric if you like and what we did actually is we we got comfortable at CDPQ with these standards first of all and we clearly they were all part of how long-term we see businesses and even with our board with our CEO at the time they were quite supportive to that effort for some of the reasons that Luke mentioned in terms of how It promotes better behavior in the ecosystem. So from that standpoint, I invested some time with some of my colleagues, uh, obviously Luke and lots of different people around the table, just to socialize these standards, have discussions with our peers in Canada, for example. Canada is well represented on the board, but also with the investor chapter. We spent a lot of time on the why. Why should you come with us? Why should you be sitting around that table? So we did a lot of that work. And then we engaged with our managers. One way for us to really onboard them on this is that we included in our operational due diligence these standards. So as you know, for us, the ODD portion of our due diligence is very important. So our due diligence team as included from the get-go, all of these standards. So for us, it was a way to more than socialize, but to include it within our own process. And then we said to the managers, you see, it's not so difficult because you're complying to these standards, right? So join us and show leadership, show leadership to the industry. We've had always had more than 70% of our managers that were, have been enrolled on SBAIs. And we continue improving and ameliorating the narrative on the why. The why is really important, I think. And I think we're making good strides on that one.
1: I think one of the things that, in the original construct, I think really the idea was that it would sort of be a pressure that came from the fact that these were the the biggest name hedge funds in London. And if they were willing to do it, it was slightly a case of, an expectation that that would bully other people into following the standards. Yeah, they were a good thing to do. It was all the big guys. Therefore, of course, everyone's going to follow. The bit that was transformational is this thing of realizing that what it took was buy-in from investors, agreement about what the standards are, and then investors can encourage their managers, as Mario has just described, to follow the practice. Managers can encourage their investors and say, Look, I follow these practices. Shouldn't you look at them for your other holdings? And so you get a hopefully, what you do is you bring the whole industry up through the good behavior. And what we want is to get to a highest common denominator, not a lowest common denominator.
0: Without batting around it too much, I think it's probably helpful to understand sort of what are the standards that you came up with in this process.
1: So, we have a quite a long list of standards and they cover everything from what's the right disclosure to provide on fees through to how do you deal with conflicts between investors, through to what should you disclose on what's an appropriate thing you can expense through to the investors, what's well, not an appropriate thing to expense through. And so we've tried to go through every stage of what an operational due diligence person would look at, who's very good, so somebody who's very diligent, and go through as many of the different areas as possible and say, okay, is it appropriate that you're charging fees on the fund and you're also charging a fee for putting trades into the fund? Well, no. That's an easy standard to say, no, you're getting paid to run the fund. You shouldn't double dip. But actually, let's define that standard. Let's define how it is. And if somebody isn't going to comply, they have to explain why they wouldn't comply. And the bar on all of the standards is high so that you've got to have a really good reason to explain. Otherwise, investors are going to look at you and go, hang on, why are you telling me it's okay that you're getting paid twice on this piece of business I'm doing with you? Of course it's not. And that type of thing so we try to get into all of the different areas of documentation, operational process. Fees are a big one because alignment of interest is this holy grail that we're all looking for.
2: Ultimately, Ted, when you look at what Luke has just mentioned, I think that when you look at the core values, transparency, valuation, integrity, good governance, I mean, if you put all of these standards together around these values, this mindset, it brings a better alignment of values. I mean, this is one of our trustees, Bruce Kundick, who's been very vocal about this, the alignment of values. We're talking a lot about alignment of interest, but these standards put together bring a lot of that.
0: Where did you find resistance once the group of people involved had agreed to standards in the community of people that were less willing to sign on?
1: One is about, we shouldn't say that all of the standards are easy to agree with the people who are signed on. Each set of standards applied to a particular area takes a lot of work, and it's basically volunteer work. So all the managers and the investors, or a group of the managers and investors who are interested in the problem, volunteer people to sit on a working group. And they have some pretty sort of stand-up shouting matches about to get to the right standard because now people mostly come because we've set standards on so much. People come at it and they're in a pretty similar place. But 12 years ago, people were all over the place in terms of what's appropriate. Is it appropriate that you have a fund where your investors go in and you have a fund alongside it, which is your own money, which is not pari and isn't disclosed to investors? Today, I think people would have a clear understanding of what's right or wrong. I've got to tell you, you know, and there's a pretty famous example about it. You go back half a dozen years ago, and that was not something people agreed. There were managers who had a very strong view that was okay, and they could put the trades they wanted to into what they considered their own account. And there was a strong view from other people that part of the point of alignment of interest was. The manager and the investors should be getting the same answer. And if it wasn't the same answer, that should be an explanation of why.
0: How do you measure the impact of the standards over the years?
2: When I look at the comments, especially for the smaller managers, the standards have been structuring a lot of what they do on the operational side. And we've had a lot of good comments from. These smaller managers, they would write to me and say, your ODD team did great work. There's a lot of things that we were not covering. But these are a lot of things that we were not covering usually are standards and things like that. So we've had some very good comment on that side. As you know, like the startup managers, they're not usually up to par with the operational part of their business. And I think that this has provided them with a very good framework. To address ODD, especially as it pertains to what institutional investors are looking for. So, I I would say from my part, this is what I've seen. The larger managers, sometimes you would be surprised by the quality or the standard of their operations. (laughs) But I think also we're starting to see from their point of view as well that from the ODD part of what we do, it helps them quite a bit in terms of aligning each other in terms of what we're looking for?
1: I think the other way of describing it, so I mean, as Mario said, you know, it's a trillion dollars of AUM on the manager side. And when you look down, the I mean, that's at least in theory, a third of the assets of the hedge fund industry. I must say, when you look down the list of people who are signatories, it's very hard to see how you add up two thirds that's not a signatory. But, but I think importantly, you go back to 2008 and 2009, and for even 2010, 2011, you could not pick up the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal without seeing some story about a hedge fund behaving badly. And that was a pretty horrible thing. And one of the reasons I got out of the investment banking industry was because it just became an embarrassing industry to be in. You know, asset management's supposed to be doing something good for our clients and there you were every day there was a bad story about the industry you know roll on 10 years and the last six months has been a real test you know, trial by fire of the industry and i'm touch wood it has been conspicuous how few stories there have been about hedge funds doing the wrong thing through this period and there have been some funds have had bad performance there's some good performance There are some funds shutting down, but you don't read every day the story of fund gating. You don't see the story of suspending this. Somebody was taking a fee here. Nobody knew about all of those sorts of things. The goal was just to improve the industry's behavior overall. Maybe a way of describing it was let's get off the front page of the newspaper for anything other than delivering value to our clients. And actually, when you look at yeah, newspapers love to write a bad story about a hedge fund. They absolutely love it. It's got that sort of, you know, knocking down the statue of the hero. There's people with money, is it? So they love to write a bad story. And actually, you look at the number of bad stories they've been able to write, and they drop down exponentially. And I do believe that's because, Sanders' board has played a real, a real part in driving that.
0: Now that you've gone through this test period and fortunately haven't seen those types of articles, where do you go from here with the Standards Board?
1: Onwards and upwards. We would like to continue to increase the footprint in terms of the number of managers and the number of investors who are signed up to the Standards because it it helps everybody. The more people signed up, the more that means the amount of time you spend on operational due diligence goes down, the confidence you have in the manager goes up and so on. We're definitely trying to increase our footprint, but also we are continually pushing around the boundaries of where we can add value. So we're not trying to cover all alternatives and ILPA and other organizations do a great job in the private equity world, but we taken on some of the alternative credit space because working out what's a hedge fund, what's a not a hedge fund is a very blurred line in there. We've looked at the insurance link market because again, there are clearly hedge fund strategies and pseudo hedge fund strategies. So we're looking wherever we can also broaden our footprint by helping in more places.
2: It's interesting, Ted, on this one, well, obviously to complete what Luke said, I think that the U.S. for us is really a focus in some ways. We've had good success over the last five years, but we still have a lot of work to do there. But I would say an area also that we see lots of growth right now is in the APAC region. And we've had tremendous leaders over there with Ted Lee at CPPIB, for example, and the trustees over there, the board over there. China's growing quite fast in terms of new manager, asset management industry. They are looking to structure themselves in terms of standards. We've had a bit of an impact there. I think it's a good region for growth. So these are the places where we see the evolution of what we do. So with the standards improving
0: over the last decade, I think I'd be remiss in having both of you guys and not taking a step back and making sure we are covering both the forest and the trees. And just, well, Luke, just want to start with you. What's your sense of the state of the hedge fund industry generally right now?
1: I feel pretty good about the state of the industry. The sort of hyper growth phase of the industry has clearly passed. And the industry went from being very small and very cottage to being quite big quite quickly. And with that came a whole lot of growing pains and This was all about solving a lot of those growing pains. Fundamentally, the AUM of the industry has been going somewhere sideways, but that's okay. We run a significant amount of risk for our clients, and I don't think growth in an overall industry should be the goal. I think what you're seeing is a concentration of AUM and firepower and talent within the industry. You might say, I would say that given I'm one of the larger players, but it's a reality. I think hedge funds, whether you are discretionary or you're quant, technology plays an incredibly important part in collecting and processing all the information you need to be successful. And in any technology impaired industry, you see a concentration of power because of the ability to invest and spend the big dollars it takes to keep ahead. The days of talking about 10,000 hedge funds are over. I don't know what the right number today is, but the reality is that probably there's a thousand credible hedge funds out there and the top 100 have a significant proportion of the assets. But that's okay, because what's really it's all about is can we deliver a valuable service to our clients to the investors to the savers of the world and i think having gone through the period where it was all about the managers and it was was frankly too many people it was about how rich did they get as a manager today it is about can we deliver value to the clients and a fair share of that value going to the clients in most cases. And and I think that is delivering value in a portfolio where if you're an investor today, it's hard to build a portfolio because you basically got a choice between equity beta and cash. And that's about it. And so actually something which is designed to be orthogonal to those two factors is a really valuable thing for portfolios.
0: Mario, from your perspective as you're Still deploying a lot of money into hedge funds. How do you think about the reality of concentration in the players?
2: Our view has changed a bit on this. At some point in our program, we were kind of looking at the smaller managers like more niche and trying to really extract and exploit interesting alphas. I think that from what Luke has mentioned, the reality has changed a bit on that side. Not to say that small is not beautiful. I think that one has to be mindful that size ultimately is the the enemy of performance. So we're kind of paying a lot of attention to this. One comment I wanted to bring, we're in 2020 and I can't believe I'm still saying this, but my hope is that at some point the industry understand that hedge funds are not at the wild fringe of finance, but they're rather the yang of markets. They're typically investors that do not follow the pack. They bring a variant perception. And this, to me, brings a stabilizing effect. And this is our using hedge funds. Hedge funds, for us, how they sit in our bigger portfolio is, is really something that's complementary, something that, of course, gives us a good risk-adjusted return, but also will help us, in some ways, better manage other areas of CDPQ. It could be risk system usage of AI data. Global macro trend following, for example, is a strategy that we've used over the years. So I think that for us, that's really important. I've been very active on bringing more of an alignment of interest over the years. I think that the performance fee is the right structure, but we need to be careful of the management fee over the years, as it is an incentive, obviously, to amass assets. The problem we've had in the last 15 years really is the whole rate structure fell which brought sort of the 220, not no longer the right fee structure. So we're very mindful of that. Our board is always reminding us every time we bring a new manager to our committee. So th- this is something that is stop of mind for us, the fees, especially in a more difficult environment to invest.
0: Luke, where have you seen this pressure on fees playing out in the business?
1: So I have a slightly quirky view on the thing on fees because I'm not sure that it's, really a pressure on fees. I think the proportion of alpha that clients are happy to leave with a manager has not really changed over years. You know, you can debate, and maybe it's something to do with the quality of the returns, some number between 25 and 30% of alpha that clients are pretty happy to leave with a manager and to feel they're getting a fair proportion. And I think, to me, it's really important remembering the only people who take risk in all of this process are the end clients. It's really important they get more than 50% of the value add. What's changed over the years is two things. One, pre-2008, and maybe you have to go back a little bit further, but back, Mary and I first met over a reference I gave him on a hedge fund, which I happen to know today is the 20th anniversary of that hedge fund starting. So it's been almost exactly 20 years, Mario and I have known each other. Back then, funds used to run typically at 10 to 15 vol, but it wasn't that hard to have a net sharp of one. If you've got a 10 to 15 vol and a net sharp of one, and you charge two and 20, actually, that works out that maybe the manager's getting a 30% and the client's getting 70% and that's fine. What happened was that the vol generally went down and you know a lot of hedge funds stated that they were trying to do a six or eight vol and then ran a three or four vol. And the sharks generally went down because the world gets more and more competitive every day. And so the unit of fees per unit of risk and per unit of value add that clients were paying went up a lot. And that was frankly not right. The clients were getting a a bad deal in there. And the last 10 years has been about a process of reorienting that. Today, clients are generally much more sophisticated, and we have clients invested in strategies with everything from, a. I think, the lowest is about a 2 volt and the highest is about 45 vol, and they pay very different fees between those different things, but that's all right, because we just agree, here's the unit per unit of risk fee. You tell us whether you want us to suck up a lot of cash and run at a low vol, or you want to minimize the cash in this strategy and we'll strip it out, and the fees adjust proportionally. So the pressure on managers is, can you deliver alpha? And if you can't deliver alpha, you shouldn't be in the business and clients shouldn't even pay zero fees, right? Because if you've got no alpha, you're not worth anything to them. They can get the beta for nothing. And so I think the pressure is to prove Can you deliver alpha? And if you can, fees are fine, but they might be delivered in different formats. So they might be in a more diluted format than they used to be. But as I say, some people it's a more concentrated format. So to me, the pressure is on that. Can you generate alpha? And that's where I'm afraid resources really make a difference these days. On Luke's point, Ted, I just
2: wanted to add one big evolution I would like to mention that we've done over the years is that. In order for us to be a better evaluator of talent, we have transitioned a big part of our program in hedge funds onto managed account platforms. Because we've seen that same trend where the manager tells you from the get-go, we usually take between 10 and 12% volatility. And all of a sudden, you realize that the real volatility is half of that, right? And you're paying 2 and 20 So for us, it's, transparency has been a good way for us to Better evaluate the active management that these managers are doing and getting more comfortable also with the fee we pay we still have some managers where we pay two and twenty but usually it's highly justified so transparency is something that we've done you know I want to dive in a little bit
0: on these points on long short equity in particular because Luke as you're talking about this range of volatility, you can imagine. Well, a 45 vol might be a trend or a future strategy, and the lower vol could be sort of a more market neutral strategy. In the long short equity world, portfolio volatilities have come in, and what's driven higher vol tends to be either concentration or the degree of market exposure, which, as you said, is for free. So, how are you thinking about the appropriate? fee structure, both in terms of your business and then also just more broadly in the standards board for just the long, short equity world, then you could break that into market neutral and with some net exposure.
1: One of the bits the standards board is very focused on is transparency and clarity around fees. You can get three or 33 investors in a room and you will probably get 40 different views about the best fee structure. Some people hate performance fees. Some people love performance fees. Some people want complicated. Some people want really simple. I think what's really important is you've always got transparency. You've always got clarity about how they work. There isn't a sort of second guessing of the process. In terms of the question around equity hedge funds, My own view in very simple terms goes back to that thing I said before. The fee for beta today is nothing, right? I mean, you can go and buy a passive index of whatever beta you want for nothing. The alpha is what's valuable, and people are happy to pay for that and should pay for that. What has been interesting to work through and challenge is Alpha and beta in an academic study are clear and black and white. What's one? What's another? You know, in the last few years, we've had this thing where factors went from being an alpha source and being long value stocks or long momentum stocks was a sort of in a fairly rudimentary way was a source of people's alpha 20 years ago to that being something you could replicate And so then it starts being an alternative beta or smart something or whatever to today, where frankly, it's really a risk factor because it's so easy to replicate that too much money replicated and goes in and out of it. And and so those have become risk factors. But the pure alpha is still there. So I think if you run an equity long short fund, and you run with a 60% net long all the time, you ought to not charge any fees, or client should look at that and go, okay, I'm going to work out the fees on the alpha you make, and I'm going to net out the 60% that's the beta effect. And you can do it in a complicated way by saying, okay, well, I'm, I'm literally going to pay you an alpha over a benchmark that's 60% of the index, or you can do it in a, rule of thumb way, but you sure as heck shouldn't be paying a 2% management fee for the 60% that's in beta. And if you think of it like that, then you can scale whether it's market neutral or it's very long biased and find the right place for you on the spectrum.
0: Well, there's always been this dichotomy of the theoretical understanding of what you should pay for and then the practical reality of relative market power in the, call it the negotiation of a fee. So given this ecosystem you described where there's more and more concentration, there's probably 100 hedge fund firms that manage most of the assets in the industry, how do you get from a historical fee structure that was a one size fits all for the package to something where you really do have a disaggregation and sort of appropriate paying for the value add from our
2: standpoint one of the variation that we brought which is in parallel to what Luke said was the fee structure which is x or y so we pay 1.5 or 15% depending instead of 1.5 and 15% which actually helps us capture the portion of the alpha that's closest to 70% if we're in a low return type environment. So it's been very difficult on that side. I mean, the thing is, I still realize that there are still not a lot of investors that are voicing that portion of negotiation or trying to align. There's still a lot of price takers out there. And ultimately, the pressure comes from the board, but the pressure comes from the return. So It's been clearly a a very tough spot. But I think that if you compare to private equity, for example, I think it's we've had more wins in hedge funds versus private markets for the very different reasons I would say. But it's something that we try to bring at the table all the time. And it ultimately the fee is part of the decision process because the fee impacts the alpha and ultimately what stays with us.
1: My experience is that most investors negotiate fees pretty aggressively. And the truth is the buying power of hedge funds is also really concentrated. Mario mentioned we have a decent Canadian presence on the SPAI. Well, we do because there's not one big buyer of hedge funds in Canada, but actually a whole bunch. And those are the sorts of clients that one wants to do business with. And so I think... It's mostly a pretty healthy push and pull. And and you could see if you've got something which has real alpha and scarcity, because Mario's right, you can destroy alpha incredibly easily by taking too much money in. So one of our funds has been effectively shut for five years now. I worked out, I've had one client meeting in two years, where the client didn't ask for capacity in that fund. Like, I do three hundred client meetings a year. Like, every single one for two years apart from one asked for capacity in that fund, saying, yeah, but it's special, right? I'm a special friend of yours. We can get some capacity. Even if it's shut to everybody else, your best clients get it, right? And it's like, no, no, it's really shut because otherwise it will screw the performance. By the way, the one turned out because the salesperson had begged the client before the meeting, not to ask about it, because otherwise you might get in trouble. So if you've got very high quality alpha and you protect it by being careful about capacity, it's perfectly reasonable that it is what goes at the best fee level. If you look at the broad spread of the industry, I would say the negotiating power is really quite balanced. We talk about 2 and 20, but 2 and 20 is not the average fee in the industry by a long way and it's certainly not the modal fee either two and 20 is now the unusual we've got some people with fantastic performance that are significantly higher than two and 20 and you've got a lot of managers that are significantly lower because they don't boast that performance and that's pretty healthy i think So if we circle back
0: to the standards board and the health of the industry as a whole, when you start talking about differential negotiations with different clients and different bargaining power, how does the standards board think about what's best for the industry as it relates to that component of fees?
1: So the way I think about it is the standards board is there. We don't try and negotiate anybody's individual fees on something. But it is a place where there is a lot of discussion about best practice. Is that type of fee structure appropriate, not appropriate? Is that something clients are understanding the right way, not understanding, or managers are trying, you know? That's an area where the standards board can really be helpful. I would say when we get together either as the board, which as Maria mentioned, is a pretty impressive group of people or in any of our, well now virtual seminars, but previously seminars, you know, it's a chance to get a group of people in a room and and talk about it. And while you'll never get to, I think on this fund, you should be paying X and somebody else thinks you should be paying Y. That's, that's not the place for it. But clarity about how do we think about it? How do you think about whether it's appropriate to charge the beach or not? That is the sort of thing we can and do discuss quite openly.
0: And how about the component of transparency of fees
2: when they are different across the board? Well, that's the area where we've done most of the work. I think that what's important is, and we've alluded to that earlier, importance of really for managers to be transparent in terms of the fees that are charged. And so we've written a lot of things on that. We've done a lot of work and analysis on that, and we've established, I think, solid standards around what should be a good practice on that side. So I think it's one thing to discuss about the level of fees, but also I think what's most important is it's important to better disclose the fees that are charged.
1: You have to treat clients fairly. You don't have to treat them all equally because they're not equal. But you can't have somebody say, no one's ever got a management fee reduction while there's a client over here who's got a management fee reduction. That is unacceptable in our view. And I think we have a a strong view about that as a grouping and everybody buys into that idea. The answer is, if you buy 1 million of something or you buy 100 million of something, the price is going to be different whatever the something is right and so you get variation in pricing but what you want to be sure is that there's transparency what you want to be sure is that somebody is not getting preferential liquidity in a way which penalizes someone else you don't want someone paying for better liquidity that the other person doesn't know about that's someone paying a higher fee but in return they're getting to get out before anybody else in the fund knows about it. That's not acceptable as an example.
0: So I'm going to ask one more question before we go into some closing questions. And that is, how do you go about spreading the word about the standards board?
1: Find a guy with a really successful podcast and beg him to let us on. How about that?
2: It's a good starter. And today I think we're doing this, but we run events around the year. In normal times, we've been quite engaged across all regions, from Canada to the US to Asia, Europe, where we've been quite active going to the regions, reuniting investors and managers and bringing forums, panels, topics around the standards and how does this play into each of the people's business. So we've done a lot of that. One of our very good weapons is the board of trustees. They each go into their own business, in their own ecosystem network to to spread the good news on what we do. I think that's been very effective. All of them are very engaged, very passionate about what we do. They believe in what we do. So that's been so far a very good tool. Actually, my team has an objective in their yearly evaluation to socialize with their own network, with managers, with prospect managers. So They do that work and they've been doing it in a very good fashion. So every ways that we can use that network, and we have such a great network with the trustees, myself, Luke, our staff, it should not be so difficult if we really execute the right way. As you look
0: out the next five, 10 years, whatever it may be, what are the goals for the organization?
2: Well, I think that one of them, we want to be recognized as the the standard setter. I would say. I think that we've done a good job. I think that we've built and developed a, a very strong currency. We're not a lobby organization. I think our voice is getting to be more and more authoritative in the marketplace. And I think it's just to continue on that path. I think also, and this is one of the challenge that Luke and I have with this new term that we have, is to really bring the organization into more of a solid footing, I would say. We've grown tremendously fast over the years. We have a very small team, so we need to be able to deliver this buy to the ecosystem. You can't do that with such small capacity. So we're building in a very sequentially on that side so that we're covering all regions, so we can nurture, cultivate all of these relationships that we have, continue doing all of the work with the iTouch investors, managers, I think now we have to work more on our process and how we deliver this buy. There you need to have that capacity. You need uh, arms and legs and brains to hit the road to engage with the ecosystem.
0: All right, guys, let's turn to some closing questions. And Mario, fortunately, you haven't answered most of these. So we'll, we'll just go back and forth on both. Luke, what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family?
1: I am reasonably wine obsessive and particularly the red wines of Burgundy. And I would happily spend several hours talking about a bottle of wine. And as my wife will remind me regularly, I do spend several hours very regularly talking about a bottle of wine. Mario? On
2: my side, I'm rediscovering in the last couple of years cycling and the, and the buzz I get from cycling. But the other thing also that this confinement is helping me rediscover is fly fishing. We have some very nice little rivers around here. So these are the two things.
0: Mario, if you started your career over today and money was no object at all and you couldn't be an investor, what would you do?
2: Casting director in movies, would love that job. And the second one, which is not too far distant, is coaching a football team.
0: So would you be casting director in a football movie? What genre of movie
2: I would like to be in 1971 and being hired to do The Godfather Part 1 as a casting director. That's the ultimate.
0: You've just put a certain fear in the minds of your portfolio managers. But with that, how about you, Luke? Other occupation?
1: Well, I have to say, money has never been the object for me. I think assuming that you can afford to eat money is a terribly bad reason to choose a career and I love financial markets and honestly, I would be doing something else in financial markets because I was drawn to this. So I learned to play cards when I was two or three, and I learned to bet on the horses when I was four or five and I observed with my grandfather who taught me about the horses. I mean, he made me do it properly, right? Form guides and couldn't bet on the name of the horse. It had to be a properly informed decision. And I noticed in a three horse race that the odds meant we were going to lose whatever, and the bookies were going to win. I'm like, he said, yeah, well, the bookies always win. I'm like, okay, I want to be one of them. Well, okay. He said, go and work in finance. That's a more socially acceptable version. I would probably be doing something else in finance. But if not, maybe I should have been a bookie after all. Luke, what's your biggest pet peeve? I hate being patronized. I'm really bad at dealing with it. If if I think somebody's patronizing me, I gets my back up in such a bad way. And I, I express my opinion rather clearly. Mario? I would say that in investing, people that are
2: closed-minded about modern techniques and finance, you know, people that really get stuck in the old paradigm.
0: Right, Luke, how about on the investment side, investment pet peeve?
1: I think one's always learning and investing. Intellectual honesty or lack of it. I mean, I guess lack of intellectual honesty. We obviously have a very big quant business and it is so important that people are honest about how many goes they've had at a problem to avoid a data mining issue. And so the bluffers is a peeve and you want people to just say, look, I don't know. And then that's fine. And then we'll work it out.
0: Luke, what teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: My mother's a psychiatrist and my sister's a psychologist. So I learned a lot of how to manage complicated relationships from a fairly early age. But I have consciously made my own career and I've tried to learn things from everybody along the way.
2: Mario? A lot of things from my mother, actually. The value of good work, good hard work. My mother was always working all her life, as much as I can remember. And I really got the notion of that quite young, actually. And she's the ultimate, the grit and the resilience of that lady. And I'm sort of rediscovering these thoughts with her as she was younger and different stages of her life. But these are the things that really mark me as far as she's concerned.
1: I'll give you one extra thing there, Ted. While I think about it, it's amazing what a high proportion of the really successful people in our industry have either had or have really bad relationships with their fathers. And I'm always amazed how often it comes up in conversation. And if you didn't notice by omission, I would be firmly in that camp. And I definitely try to have a very good relationship with my kids. But somehow it does seem like being pissed off with your father seems to be quite a good way to leading to success in our industry.
0: All right. Last one, Luke. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life?
1: So I don't believe in regrets. I spend my life looking forward and I'm pretty lucky in terms of I've had a very good life. I've touched with the reason I'm here is because I've had a pretty successful career. I'm very happily married. I've got three lovely kids. I wouldn't want to have learned something which would have changed the path of life because I might have learned something incredibly insightful that would have led to me walking in front of a car the next day. I got no regrets with how my life has turned out.
2: Mario? Like Luke, I have no regrets. I'm one of the lucky ones in this industry over the last more than 25 years now, to be honest. Of course, there were a few bumps always, right? But I think that one of the things that, and I'm kind of realizing that now today at 53 years old is the power and importance of the network and how you use that network and how you can leverage a lot of different things and being even much stronger and where it's brought me in my career. So that's, that's something that I really am realizing at a later stage of my career, but clearly it's never too late.
0: Luke, Mario, thanks so much, guys